feel like I should apologize for the state of my voice this morning and that you have to you have to listen to it for the next uh, uh, little bit. It's been uh, sickness has been kind of making its way through our house. Um, so uh, I apologize for that. <laughs> but uh, bear with me for the next little bit. Um, does anybody here collect anything? Collect anything? John, what do you collect? Fishing rods. All right. I don't find that surprising at all. At all. Conrad, what about you? Lint. Okay. How do you decide what lint is worthy of collection and what lint is not worthy of collection? Is there like a criteria? <laughs> um, anybody else? Yeah, Rachel. Coins. Okay. Awesome. I, uh, um, I, I spoke at my kid's school uh, in chapel this week. Actually, you're getting the same message that they got. So, um, But I asked that question to a bunch of middle schoolers, and I got some interesting answers. Um, rocks was one answer, which I guess, you know, there's you know some pretty looking rocks. Um, one girl collects gel pens, um, which I didn't know that was a thing. Um, uh, uh, but does anybody else collect gel pens? Or another One of the boys said he collects Coke bottles. Um, and I asked him, I said, is it like Coke bottles from all over the world? And he's like, no, it's just Coke bottles that I drink and I collect them. Um, I'm pretty sure that's called hoarding at that point. Um, I don't know that that really qualifies uh, as a hobby. Um, just different Coke bottles that pretty much all look the same because you get them from Wawa. Um, so I've never really, uh, I've never been a big hobby person. I've, I've tried to start hobbies at certain times in my life and I don't have, Maybe the, I don't have the attention span to stick with it uh, for very long. When I was a kid, I did collect baseball cards for a brief uh, portion of time in my life. And uh, this uh, particular card was my prized possession in my baseball card collection. This was my Wade Boggs rookie card. Wade Boggs was my favorite uh, player uh, when I was a kid. I, I, obviously, I'm a Red Sox fan. And um, so I, you know, I loved Wade Boggs. And uh, so this card, I, you know, I had it in like one of those plastic, you know, hard plastic containers so that nothing could happen to it. It kept it in mint condition and uh, it was great. But um, something terrible happened. Um, tragedy struck. Um, and this is what happened. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wade Boggs became a Yankee. And um, you don't do that. Uh, if you're, you know, you don't go from a, being a Red Sox to being a Yankee. So Wade Boggs immediately went from being my favorite player to being dead to me. Um, so, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, he went on to win a World Series with the Yankees, and then he's celebrating with the Yankees, riding a horse around Yankee Stadium. It's like he's just mocking me uh, the entire time. Um, but, um, so, you know, I collect baseball. I don't collect baseball cards anymore. There may be some baseball cards somewhere at my mom's house. Um, but obviously, I, I don't actively do that anymore. <clears throat> but um, there's something else that I think we all have a collection of sorts. Um, for some of us, that collection, <coughs> excuse me, for some of us, that collection is larger than others. For those of you that are younger in the room, your collection is likely not as big as um, it is for some of us, some of those who are older in the room. But we all have. Uh, these collections. It's not a collection that we're proud of, um, but we have it, and that collection is regrets. Um, the longer we live, the more time we have to make choices we regret. And um, many of our regrets come from choices that we wish we hadn't made. 
uh, we think about it. There are times in our lives where we're faced with decisions and we made decisions that we just wish we hadn't made. And we think of, when I think back about my own life and I think about decisions that I made and I think about decisions that I made that I regret, there are certain times <clears throat> in my life that I feel like I've been more likely to make um, decisions that I regret. And this isn't necessarily an all-encompassing list, but when I look back on my life, these are some of the times when I find, you know, I've been more prone to make decisions that I'm not proud of that I regret. You know, when I'm angry, when something has really gotten me angry, when emotions are running high, you know, I may tend to say something that I'm, reg- I'm going to regret. I may tend to do something that I'm going to regret. You know, something that in the moment maybe feels really good in the moment. You ever have that time where you're maybe in an argument with somebody or somebody has done, th- done something to you and you have like the perfect kind of response that's going to like really zing somebody, really get them, really, you know, make, you know hurt them the way you feel like they've hurt you and you say it and it feels so good in the moment. And then maybe, maybe minutes later, maybe days later, you think back on that and you're like, Oh, that was such a terrible thing to say. What a jerk I am. And, um, you just wish that you could pay you, that you could take those words back. When I want something, when I want something really bad, I can make choices that I regret when I want something. Cause think about it, when you want something, you can pretty much come up with reasons to justify why you need that thing. Oftentimes for myself, when I want to purchase some new piece of technology, um, I can come up with a way to justify that purchase. I need, you know, I need this. This is going to help me out. This is going to help me in ministry, or this is going to help me in my work, or this is going to help me, you know, so I I need this. Really, God wants me to have this. I mean, uh, let's let's be honest. Um, So when I want something, when I'm guilty, You know, when I've done something or said something, you know, and, I, and when I am regretting something, when I'm guilty, I could compound that by making more bad decisions, whether that is to try to, you know, try to justify what I did or shift the blame to somebody else <clears throat> or to um, try to cover up maybe some of my guilt in this, try to downplay my level of responsibility with something. Um, and of course, there's, you know, just in general when I'm tempted, when I just tempted to do something that I know I shouldn't do, you know, whether it's something that feels good or is fun in the moment, I can make decisions that are unwise. And, you know, we don't have to look, we can look throughout scripture and find examples uh, of people who have made uh who have made bad decisions, who have made decisions that they regret. And then, you know, all throughout scripture, we could find that. One of the most, one, one example that you're probably very familiar with comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba. So I'm not going to read through those two chapters, but I'll just summarize the story for you quickly for me, if there's anybody here that may be unfamiliar with that. Um, so, you know, David's the king of Israel, and he is... You know, he sends the armies of Israel off to war. But he, as the king, decides to stay home. So he's going to stay home and send the, send the armies off to war. Not, you know, not, there's not, not necessarily a sinful decision on his part. Not, you know, it's not something that he's not wrong to want to, you know, to stay home and say. It's sort of like his right as the king to be able to make that decision. Am I going to go? Am I going to stay? It's not necessarily an issue of sin for him to have stayed home. But he does that. He says... Um, it may be have been uncommon, but not wrong of him 
to have been able to do that. So he sends the army out, and he stays home. So the army's out fighting. He's home, just kind of wandering around one night, and he's walking around on the roof uh, of his palace. Strange, um, but, you know, this is what he's doing when he's, you know, he, apparently he's got a lot of free time on his hands because, you know, the army's out there fighting, and he's not. So he's home, and he's walking around on the, pal- on the roof of the palace, and he's looking around, and then he looks down, and he's able to see into where this woman Bathsheba is bathing. So now David's becoming a little bit creepy <laughs> in this story. So now he's got a choice to make. So he's walking around. He happens to look. He glances in. He sees Bathsheba. And he has a choice to make. Like, wow, he could, you know, he could make the honorable choice and say, wow, I shouldn't be here. Let me turn and, and go in another direction. But he makes a different choice. So he's home. The army's out battling. And he says he sends somebody to go get Bathsheba and bring him, bring her to him. He decides, you know, and he ends up sleeping with Bathsheba, and then Bathsheba ends up pregnant. Now David's in a, now David's in a lot more trouble. So it's what started off with just sort of a, eh, you know, not the best decision, but not necessarily a sinful decision, has now led him to this point where now he is guilty. He has sinned. Bathsheba's pregnant. He's guilty. What is he going to do about that? Does he acknowledge it? Does he admit it? Um, and ask for forgiveness, or does what is you know? We most of us probably know the next thing is he calls he calls for his commanders to send Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband. So Bathsheba is married. Send your to send Uriah to David. So Uriah comes to David. They have dinner at the palace. David tries to get Uriah drunk so that he will go home and sleep with his wife, and he can say like, okay, the baby's Uriah's, no big deal. I'm I'm good. I'm covered. I don't need to worry about it anymore. But Uriah is so honorable, so honorable that even after coming home, having dinner, getting drunk with David, he sleeps outside, doesn't go home to his wife. Because he says, if my brothers in arms are out there battling, why should I go home to my bed and my wife? So now David is really stuck because Uriah is so honorable, he cannot get him to help him cover up this sin. So David has to take it a step further, he decides, to cover up his guilt. And he sends Uriah back to the battle, tells his commanders to ha- put Uriah in the place where the fiercest fighting is happening. And then when in the midst of the attack, he wants everybody to back away from Uriah and yet let Uriah get killed. And this happens. Uriah goes out and fights. They back away from him. Uriah gets killed. David marries Bathsheba. I'm good now. Now I'm, you know, I'm, just, I'm just marrying a widow. Now, no big deal, David says. Of course, we know that's not, not how, it, how it happens. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and basically says, you know, God knows, God knows what you did. You're guilty. And the son that ends up coming from that experience between David and Bathsheba ends up dying as a consequence uh, of David's actions. All starting from a point where David just made an unwise choice at the very beginning of this entire story. <clears throat> Just the choice to stay home and to walk around on the roof and to not look away in a moment when he should have led to this regret of David. One of the, one of the biggest regrets of David's life and one of the biggest downfalls of the man that, God, the, God, that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. And that's just one example from Scripture. But we don't even need to necessarily look at Scripture for examples. We just have to look at our own lives. 
or times. We all make bad decisions at times. We all have things, and I'm sure you may not have to look back too far to find choices and decisions that you regret. And they may not have even have started like much like David. They may not have started with an issue of sin where you made a sinful choice, a, a black and white wrong choice, but just an unwise choice that led down a road that quickly spun out of control. And we all make these bad decisions at times. And I think one of the reasons we make bad decisions is because we're starting, when we're faced with choices in our lives, <clears throat> we're starting with the wrong questions. We're asking ourselves the wrong questions when faced with decisions in our lives. There are some questions that I think that we tend to ask um, when we're faced with choices in our lives. The, one of the first questions that I think we ask is the question of, what am I allowed to do? We basically start with, like, when I'm faced with something that I want in my life, I start with this question, is there anything wrong with it? <clears throat> Can I make a case for it? Can I convince my spouse or my parents uh, that I need this or that I want this? Can I justify this in my mind? <clears throat> Many of you know that uh, last summer we took a group of youth group students to Arizona uh, for a missions trip. We had a couple of days left uh, at the end of the mission trip, so we spent those days at the Grand Canyon. Um, this is one of the, uh, just a picture um, of two of our students, Katie and Megan, sitting uh, on the edge of the Grand Canyon. So now, many, maybe some of you are seeing this picture and thinking, I'm never sending my kids with Eric <laughs> anywhere. Uh, in this particular picture, there actually is something alleged that you can't see that's under their feet there. But one thing that happened throughout this trip is these girls, let me tell you, uh, these girls, like it was like their mission to get as close to the edge of the Grand Canyon as humanly possible. Like there are certain parts of the Grand Canyon where there's like rails and stuff and you can't, you know, die. Um, but there are other parts where like it's like this, where you, if you want to walk, you can get right up to the edge. And, you know, I would say this, I'd be like, back up, <laughs> Back up. I don't want to tell your parents that you're dead. Um, and they would always have the same response to me. Like, it's fine, Eric. It's fine. I'm not going to fall. And you know what? I, we looked it up, actually, before we went on the trip. 30 people a year fall into the Grand Canyon and die accidentally. So, and I said, you know, I'm pretty sure that every conversation for the person that just fell into the Grand Canyon went like this. Hey, back up. I'm fine. Like, like nobody thinks they're going to fall. Nobody go walks up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and thinks, you know, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to die right now. But you know what? It's worth, these three inches are worth it. You know, it's, we get right, they get right up to the edge and I'm like, back up, we're fine. Um, so we made a rule, like, I think it was like the 12 to 18 inch rule. Like you needed to have, you know, at least to be able to like, if you stumbled, you can like at least have something to put your foot on before you die. Um, so, um, we, we brought back most of them, uh, <laughs> with us. <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of pictures like this. Um, but you know, this is a little bit like how we treat decisions in our lives. Sometimes like we want to get right up to the edge. What, what is, what is that point where what, if I do this, I would be wrong or I would, it would be sin for me to do this. And I want to get right up to that edge, right up to the point, right to the edge of wrong. And I'm good. And I'm good as long as I'm on the edge. But 
I'm pretty much sure that anybody who has had a major, whether it's failure of character or moral failure in their life, and they've gotten up to the point where, you know, just shy of where it would be sin, has said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not doing X. I'm only doing this. It's fine. I'm okay. We want to get right up to the edge of wrong. But people fall. People fall. And it's the people who do the people who get right up to the edge. If you're not near the edge, you can't fall. If you're not near the edge of the canyon, you can't fall in. But sometimes we want to do this. We we say what we ask the question of, is there anything wrong with it? And if our answer to that question is no, we're okay. Other questions we tend to ask, what do I have the right to do in this situation? What's, what is fair? What's owed to me in this, in this situation right now? You know, this is, a, this is a question we may ask ourselves a lot when we've been wronged um, by somebody. You know, what do they owe me? What, what's, what are my rights in this situation? Especially as Americans, you know, we hear a lot about rights. As Americans, um, you know, and rights, you know, when somebody has, has trampled on my rights or somebody has infringed upon my rights, you get a huge response. Um, you know, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? You know, I have a right to X, Y, and Z. Um, and, the, you know, especially in times when, so, so when somebody has infringed upon something in my life that I perceive as a right, we can have a pretty strong response to that. I think we have to be careful, especially living in America about this conversation about rights, because we talk about God-given rights and we talk about rights in general. I'm not sure that we have rights in terms when, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. Um, you know, we're not, you know, we're not promised things like safety and security. We're not promised, you know, necessarily happiness all the time. So we have to be careful a lot of times when we talk about rights, because we can talk about our rights in terms of, you know, what we have in terms of our government, and we can easily transition those rights over to what we perceive to be true of our relationship with God. And we can actually think that God is infringing upon our rights sometimes. Um, And sometimes, and we can really find ourselves making unwise decisions when we've placed ourselves in situations where we're going to demand our rights from somebody. Um, Last question that I want to touch on, and this isn't necessarily, like, this isn't an all-encompassing list, but these are just the things that came to my mind as I was thinking about this, is just the what do I want question. In general, what do I want? Because when I want something, I can find a way to justify it in my mind. So when faced with decisions or temptation or desires, and we ask ourselves these questions, we're basically asking one kind of overall overarching question. And it's this question, what is okay? What is okay? I just want okay. What is the bare minimum that's required of me in this situation? And how do I, how do I get there? Or what's the absolute maximum that I can get away with in this situation and still be just okay? I'm not sure that God is calling us as followers of Christ, to okay. I think he wants a little bit more from them, more of us. Um, I'm, a big, I, I'm a big fan of, of the play and all the movies, Les Miserables. 
Um, I like all the different versions of it. And one of my, I want to show you one of my favorite scenes um, from that. I'm going to show you from the, the most recent movie is the version that we're going to be looking at. Um, have a look at this. Get in there. Put down. Stay there. Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? <coughs> Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for That's a great scene. I don't think I didn't see you singing, Hannah. Um, <laughs> so um, that's a great that's that's a great scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the, in the movies and the plays because. Um, so just to get, if you have if you're not familiar with, to give you a little bit of context, that the guy who's caught his name is Jean Valjean. He's the kind of the main character throughout the play and the movies, and he has just been released from prison, and. Because he's been released, he's just been released from prison. He's like an outcast in society. No one will give him, no one will give him a job. No one will give him food. No one will give him shelter. And he comes across this, like this church where this bishop is, and he, this bishop is the only one who says, you know, come inside, stay the night, we'll feed you. Um, and when this happens, Jean Valjean is so foreign to him, he doesn't, you know, he, he can't accept it. So he ends up stealing all the silver from the church and le- and running away. And what you're seeing there, he's, he's been caught with the silver and brought back and put in front of the bishop. So this bishop who has offered him food, has offered him shelter, has been the only one that since he's been released from prison has treated Jean Valjean with any sort of respect or dignity. And Jean Valjean has returned that favor by stealing from him. So he's arrested, he's put in front of the bishop, and this bishop now has choices to make. It would not have been wrong for the bishop in that scenario to say, yeah, he stole it, throw him back in jail. It would not have been wrong. It would not have been sin for him to do that. It would have been just, right? I mean, he stole. There's a punishment for stealing. And 99.9% of the people, uh, the other people would have treated Jean Valjean. That way would have been a much shorter play, um, you know, and, and much less interesting. Um, 
But it would not have been wrong for him to do that. But he doesn't. Instead, he offers grace. He doesn't demand his rights to being reimbursed for what has been stolen from him. In fact, he gives more. He says, you forgot the best. And he hands him the candlesticks. And the next scene, I'm not going to show it to you because it, you know, we don't have the time. But the next scene shows this, how this impacts Jean Valjean. And there's this whole song where um, he's singing about how this just does not make sense to him that he has been treated this way, that this man, you know, would offer him grace, would speak to him kindly, would offer him respect and dignity. And it impacts Jean Valjean so much that he decides, I need to become a different, a completely different person. And countless people throughout the rest of the play are impacted by Jean Valjean deciding that he needs to become somebody new um, throughout the rest of the play, simply because this bishop in this moment decided, I'm not going to demand my rights. I'm not going to ask what do I, what's owed to me. I'm not going to ask what's fair. I'm going to ask a different question. And I think we see Paul writing about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Paul writes about this idea of what are we looking for? What's our goal in our life? He says, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Paul, like the bishop, is saying, we need to think beyond what we're allowed in the moment. We need to think beyond what's okay and ask ourselves a better question. We need to Ask, not ask, what do I want? Not ask, what's okay? But ask, what is the best thing for me to do? What is, the, what is the best way for me to respond to this situation? I don't want the bare minimum. I want the best for my life and the lives of those around me. I want the best of what God has in store for me. And that means in times when I'm faced with a decision, I need to not ask what am I allowed or what is fair, but what is the best thing I can do? So when, I, when, my spa, when we're in an argument with, with our spouse, what is the best thing for me to do? do? I can win an argument maybe, or I can ask myself, what's best for my marriage right here and right now? When, my, when your brother or sister drives you crazy at home, what's the best thing that you can do? Can I, do I demand my rights in that situation? Or do I say, what's best for my family? What's best for my relationship in this moment? You have a terrible boss. What's the best thing that you can do in that situation? Opposite-sex co-worker seems to be giving me a lot of attention. What's the best thing to do in that situation? Not what's allowed, not what's okay, not what's fair, but what's best. Now, you might be thinking about this, okay, that's fine, what's best, but how do I know? How do we know what's best in different situations? And I think there's a few different ways Again, not necessarily an all-encompassing list, but a few different ways that we can ask ourselves the best question. First one is asking ourselves, am I having an internal struggle 
about something. Like maybe I'm faced with, maybe I'm doing something or maybe I want to do something. And it's not necessarily a sin to do this. It's not wrong, but there's just something. There's just something going on inside of me that's telling me, "Ah, I'm not sure that this is really the best thing for me to be doing right now. Maybe it's, I'm not, maybe I feel like I don't, I'm a little embarrassed to tell somebody I'm doing it. Maybe it, maybe it's that, but there's something going on inside of me that's telling me, ah, this isn't such a good idea. Ask yourself a question when that's happening. Where do you think that's coming from? Like, who is arguing with you in that moment? You know, you know that's a good chance that that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life, right? They're telling you, this is a bad choice. Yes, no, it's not sin. No, there's no scripture reference that I can pull out and tell you, thou shalt not do this. But there's something going on inside of you that's saying, this might not be a good idea. And maybe I should pay attention to that. And maybe I should seek out, you know, the godly counsel of somebody else and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, but there's something that's making me not feel so right about it. What do you think about it? There's that sense of conviction that can happen that's telling us maybe this is not a good, a good thing for me. So am I having an internal, an internal struggle about something? One way to ask that best question. Next way, um, how will this impact, <coughs> excuse me, how will this impact those around me? This concern question. Um, a little bit later on, the next verse in that passage we just read in 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 24, Paul says, not to be concerned for our own good but the good of others. So asking ourselves the question of how is this going to impact the people around me? How's it going to impact my spouse? How's it going to impact my kids? How will this impact my coworkers? How will this impact my friends? Will it harm somebody else if I make this decision in some way? Will it hurt a relationship that I have with somebody else? That issue of concern. Last question, what happens next? What's the, consequence? What's, the, what's the ultimate consequence? Play this decision out to its logical conclusion. If things continue to progress in the direction that they're going right now, where does it end? Um, many of you know my son, Owen. Um, and uh, he can at times have a little bit of a fiery personality. Um, and um, we started, anytime he sort of like starts to, starting to have like a really hard time with something or it looks like he's kind of heading into towards like an emotional escalation, we have a question that we ask him to try, just to try to get him to stop and think a little bit. And that question is, how is this going to end for you? <laughs> um, you know, if this, if you're, if you continue to do what you're doing right now, where will you end? And usually the answer is bad. <laughs> and uh say like, good yeah right yeah probably bad how do you want it to end good <laughs> okay what do you think you need to do right now then for this to end well for you what choice do you need to make right now and the idea here is we're hoping um that this will teach him over time to think a little bit more long term you know, and that's a struggle that we have as kids. It's a struggle that we have as adolescents. We hope that as we go into adulthood, we begin to be able to think a little bit more long-term. If we are able to think about what will ultimately happen five steps down the road if I make this choice, what happens when the fun is over? 
what happens when my wife or husband or um, boss finds out or my parents find out? What happens when the bill comes and I need to pay for this? If we think beyond the fun, think beyond the immediate reward, what happens next? Um, and ultimately, like there, ultimately, what this is all leading to, and as Paul, and we read beyond a little bit further down in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul <clears throat> brings us to the point where we have the ultimate question, which is the question of, will this glorify God? Chapter, I'm just, verse 31 of chapter 10, Paul says this, ends this discussion. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Will this choice, the ultimate question, will this choice glorify God? So in work, glorify God. In my finances, glorify God. In my family life, glorify God. What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? That everything I do, everything we do, reflects the greatness of God like a giant mirror to the world. Now, you may have been listening to this today, and you're just, maybe you're thinking back over like, man, there's just been choices I've made where I've not asked myself that question. I have asked, you know, what do I want? I have asked what's owed to me. I have asked, you know, I have demanded my rights. And I, it has hurt relationships. It has hurt situations in my life, and I look forward, and I'm just not sure that I can do this all the time moving forward. And you know what? You can't. I can't, and you can't. We can't. This is not something that, we, especially under our own power, but there, we are going to mess up. We have messed up. We are going to continue to mess up. For that, there is grace. We are not disqualified from God's plans when we fail to ask ourselves this question. We are not useless to God. God can use us to, in a wide variety of ways moving forward, sometimes even to serve and speak wisdom to people who are in similar situations uh, to us. But there is forgiveness, there is grace, and God still has a purpose and a plan for us, even in the midst of, in the aftermath of, unwise choices and regrets that we made. And if we have brought those things to God and asked for forgiveness, they are forgiven. We don't need to continually go back and replay failure after failure after failure in our lives. And that's something that I struggle with a lot in my own life. I'll go back and I'll just, you know, I have a hard time accepting that I've really been forgiven. And I'll just replay it like, oh, I was so stupid when I said that. I was so stupid when I did that. And God doesn't want us be doing that. God wants us to experience the reality of his grace and the reality of, of his forgiveness so that moving forward, we can be used in even more powerful ways and continue to then ask ourselves the best question. What does it take to glorify God in this situation? And if we're honest with ourselves, what do our choices currently reflect? Do they reflect our own desires or do they reflect the glory of God? And where in our life can our choices more reflect the greatness of God? And where are we settling for okay when the best is waiting for us? And where do we need to experience the grace of God in times when we've fallen short? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. 
I thank you that this is not all on us, that you desire to use us and that you will forgive us and that you will empower us to make the choices that you want us to make. And I pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit's leading and that we would rely on your spirit's uh, empowerment of us to live bold lives for you and to make the best choices in times when we're faced with difficult decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.